Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Would you all like a little bit of inspiration in your life today to get out and do something good for the world and especially for plants? Well, today's episode is going to give that to you. Joining us is Gary Salath. He is the founder of the Louisiana Iris Conservation Initiative. And when I say this is truly an inspirational effort, I mean it. If you haven't heard of Louisiana irises before, that's okay. I didn't either until recently. They are involved in a lot of hybridizing among different irises, so you've probably encountered some of their genetic legacy. But Louisiana irises are a taxonomic group of five iris species native to Louisiana and the surrounding regions of the Gulf Coast. Iris fulva, iris hexagona, iris brevicollis, iris gigantocerulea, iris nelsonii, and iris savannarum. They are beautiful wetland irises, and they are losing ground fast due to a lot of different factors like saltwater intrusion, draining of swamps, habitat destruction, you name it. These irises were once very common, and today they're growing increasingly rare, and that's why my guest is doing everything he can to not only help people remember these irises, but to do something to restore them and their habitat. And the way he's going about it is awesome. It is proof that you don't need a ton of resources to do really important and impactful work. But I don't want to steal any of his thunder. He is a dedicated and passionate individual who is also a great storyteller. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Gary. I hope you enjoy. All right, Gary Salath, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, uh, my name is Gary Salath, and I'm currently the founder, a volunteer, and I'm on the board of directors of the Louisiana Iris Conservation Initiative, which is a Louisiana nonprofit uh, organization. And we, I started the work that we do when I was a member, and I'm still a member of the Greater New Orleans Iris Society. When I began heading up Iris Restoration Project, so there were two things that we did: is we'd find Louisiana irises that were threatened with destruction, we'd get permission from the landowner to dig them up, and then we'd plant them at area refuges and uh, wildlife nature preserves. And I can, in a minute, I'll go into why we do all that. And so for two years, I kind of headed up their, their program. And in 2020, partly because of COVID-19, hmm. um, I decided to set up a nonprofit just for those things. The Greater New Orleans Our Society is primarily made up of hybridizers who cross-pollinate Louisiana irises to create new hybrids and they register them. So they're really collectors. Of irises. Uh, I guess you could say I'm the opposite of that, <laughs> which is I'm putting irises back out into the marsh. Um, so we started the Louisiana Iris Conservation Initiative in 2020, right when the lockdowns began. So timing went great. But actually, it, it worked out fairly well because um, there were a lot of people that could not go to work who want to do things outdoors. So we actually were able to get some local volunteers to help. Oh, wow. So we started my interest uh, in my background is in um, construction, business management and sales. Hmm. 
Um, I retired in um, January of last year. Congrats. Thank you. Enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> Good to hear. Well, I kind of picked up another career. It doesn't quite pay as well. <laughs> sure sounds it, yeah. Passionate. <laughs> pay any, not that it costs me to be. Oh, boy. I know what I'm doing, but I don't mind. <laughs> so, um, you know, for, for most of my career, I was involved in designing homes hmm. and sales and sales management. And for the last 20 years, um, I had a business partner that we started our own company and he would build the homes and I would handle the office management, the sales and uh, design work. Um, he was an avid outdoorsman as I have been my whole life. Um, I'm a product of many people share my story of a dad taking a little, his little sons <laughs> out cane pole fishing. Nice. Little did they know that would result in 60 plus years of a guy fishing <laughs> and wanting to be outdoors. Excellent. And so I tried to do that with my granddaughters. Wonderful. Um, I have all daughters and all granddaughters. So, uh, but I've taken them all fishing and introduced them to the outdoors. Great. So, my brother and I used to uh, to go out in the swamp in Pirards, and every now and then we'd run across uh, Louisiana, Iris, and Wyoming. You know, you're young. You'd had to, to hunt ducks and things. You're not worrying about plants. My mother was an avid gardener. Mm. My dad was a gardener for, and you, with vegetable gardens, but my mom was a, kind of a forerunner of the native plant type person oh, wow. that's very popular right now. Excellent. So she always had irises growing somewhere in her garden. But again, you know, as a kid, a teenager, I never registered. But uh, she also would take us out on family trips on a, during the weekend to go out and see things and introduce us to the outdoors. And I do remember her taking us on trips during the Iris one to show us the wild irises. Wonderful. Farmed in the New Orleans area, in New Orleans East in particular. So um, long story short, my wife and I, uh, in preparation for my retirement, um, and I fact that our girls had grown uh we no longer needed the acre and a quarter two-story house <laughs> and all the things that go with that for maintenance and i found a lot in the subdivision outside of madisonville um, that was essentially a hole in the ground and next to it was the subdivision detention pond hmm. that pretty much had water in it all the time so i went to the developer and i said you know i'll buy that hole in the ground nobody else is going to buy it but i kind of have a vision for it but Part of the deal is that I have your permission to landscape around the pond, hmm. which he agreed to. Nice. So I designed a home where we have a wall of windows in our living room looking up to the pond. And this was eight or nine years ago. And so I landscaped with the trees and bushes, uh, azaleas. And I thought, you know, pine, why not ours? So I didn't know <laughs> much about it. Got on uh, the internet. I found out there was a great New Orleans Hour Society mm. just across the lake from where I live. And one name kept reappearing, Patrick O'Connor, who I've since learned uh, is an international <laughs> expert on Louisiana irises. And so somehow I found his phone number. I called him up and said, you know, I got this pond and I found some irises and I dug them up and put it around a pond. But in my research, I found out that there's irises that they call imposters, which are actually an invasive species. <laughs> <Okay>. Nice. 
<laughs> so he told me how to tell if it was that, and it was a rib down a leaf, and I checked, and boy, it sure felt like a rib. Huh. I said, you know, before I dig up all these irises, would you mind if I bring you um, some of the leaves so you could look at them and hmm. confirm it for me? So he said, well, I would not only do that, but if you come to my house, we just send out the our Louisiana iris beds at the sculpture garden <laughs> in City Park, and I have some irises I can get of you. Ooh. So I said, great. So I found his house. He ran his finger over the leaf and said, nah, you got the invasive species. <laughs> oh, no. Which was a lot of work to dig up. Yeah. A lot of doors. People thought I was weird. I'm going, you mind if I dig up some of the irises in your ditch? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've since found out those are the yellow irises that you see everywhere. Right. right. And they actually becoming a problem. But yeah. now they're showing up in the wild. And they will outcompete all the native uh, plants of the Louisiana irises. So Patrick gave me his two bags of uh, cultivars, uh, Louisiana iris cultivars, which is probably about 250 plants. I put them in, uh, built garden beds along the pond edge. And they really started kind of putting on a show. So I, I told them about showing some pictures. So they said, would you mind the board? The directors comes up to see your pond. <laughs> So they came up and we sit on my porch having wine and cheese. And I said, you know, we'd like your pond to be on the convention tour for the oh, American wow. Art Society. Wow. Which is coming in 2018. Huh. And we'll give you more hours. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, long story short, I ended up on the board of directors of the Louisiana <laughs> Art Society. I had a few thousand hours going around my pond. Wow. They, um, uh, the convention came to town. I got my neighbors to help me, and they were like, you know, what, what are we doing? I mean, what convention, you know? And so next thing you know, these three giant buses pull up. <laughs> and the door was open. Surprise. And before we knew it, there's a few hundred people walking around the pond. And wow. The and we had set up tables and drinks. And uh, and the weather was just perfect, and the irises were just blooming. Hmm. And then it was like crazy. It was just really a special uh day so uh if i didn't know it beforehand i knew then that i was kind of hooked on ours. <laughs> that's great and that was a huge success and, and it was really nice and i appreciated everything that they had done for me uh by supplying me with ours and i also bought some that sure. were rare just to kind of make it interesting well i got on the board of directors of gray new orleans honor society and i met some of the members who had been going out into the swamps to find uh, the species irises. And I learned the difference between the cultivars, which are hybrids created by hybrid irises, and the species irises, of which there's five, four of which grow in uh, Louisiana. Hmm. So uh, these guys were just like me. <clears throat> I hate to say it, I still fish a little bit, but. Yeah. It happened. They were all outdoorsmen who uh, found out that hunting up irises was almost as much fun as hunting up hmm. fish and game. So um, they'd put on their hip boots, get their Peter Rogers, and go uh, look for rare color variations of hmm. wild irises. Get permission from the landowner to collect them and then propagate them and save them. Wow. So I learned um, from them that uh, because of saltwater intrusion, development was a huge one, subsidence, that uh, the wild Louisiana irises would definitely in decline. Hmm. And I drove on I-310 
to Cecil Plus two days ago. And they were telling me about a stop because I haven't stopped myself. It's too dangerous. But if you peek over the side right now, it's just unbelievable. A number of gigantic blue irises that are blowing wow. out there. And, and that's probably one of the last remaining places Dang. that they're that numerous. And for a few years, I've been trying to figure out a way to get a small boat down there. And I'm, I've made up my mind next year I'm going to do it. I'll, no matter what, even if I gotta throw a B rod over the Because <laughs> I mean, truly a, a once in a lifetime type experience if you can get down sure, there. Yeah. So I definitely have that on my, my list of goals for next year. Wow. But um, that is very unusual. I mean, you find areas now where they're totally extinct, uh, areas where they incline, areas where they're threatened, and everything. Very, very few areas where they're thriving. Yeah. But we all learned about the marsh restoration projects that resulted from the uh, BP money, penalty money coming in, mm. and the awareness of everybody, which has really just taken place in the last 10 years, of how cutting off the Mississippi River from our marshes has not only stopped land from building, but it's not replenishing the marshes. Right. Keep them off and from sinking, you know, just from natural processes of any delta, it sinks. It needs to be replenished with new soil every spring when it floods. Yeah. So we've cut all that off with the levees. But now I think people, the majority of the people understand it. And so now we have all these uh, Mississippi River diversions hmm. that are in place, uh, planned. But what's crazy is the money's available to build them. Yeah. Hundreds of millions of dollars is being spent and will be spent wow. on marsh restoration in Louisiana. So in a lot of cases, what's going to happen is the, the line where the brackish and fresh water had advanced is going to be pushed back more. Hmm. And there will be land created that will be fresh water land again. Wow. So everybody's kind of gearing up for plans to replant those areas. There's hmm. a lot of groups working on cypress trees, the uh, Punch Train Conservancy, um, and there's a number of them, but nobody's working on reintroducing Louisiana irises. Hmm. So that kind of got our attention, it got my attention particularly, and so more and more we began to realize that the first thing you have to do is to reintroduce the public to Louisiana irises. Indeed. At one time, there were iris clubs and iris plantings at every school in the city in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, 1940s, it was statewide iris organizations. And a lot of those were like garden clubs, but they also were interested in conservation. Mm. And one of the biggest plantings that they did was in City Park, which is now within the Sculpture Garden. Huh. And those, those iris beds are there. As a matter of fact, we went, my wife and I and granddaughter went through them uh, yesterday. Wow. And they in full bloom. So anyway, Louisiana irises, irises had always been, always been part of the culture of New Orleans and South Louisiana. And many of the people in the rural areas called them ditch lilies because they were just so, <laughs> so common. Wow. They could be a second thought. And I have some photographs from the 1920s of just irises as far as I can see. 
Hmm. And his two kids on the walk sitting there and they look in the other direction. <laughs> in other words, it was just normal. Passe. Yeah. <laughs> and right now there'd be a hundred people out there. Right. right. Like wow. And these kids are just like oblivious. It's like, yeah, those are bitch lilies. So um we what what we discovered was that all the parishes started spraying their ditches with a herbicide. Weeds about 25, 30 years ago. So anybody in Southeast Louisiana old enough can remember when all these stitches were just full of Louisiana irises, which would bloom in April. Yeah. And um, so little by little, those disappeared as the herbicides were being used, combined with not seeing as many out in the wild because of the other reasons I said. Right. So we said, you know, the first thing we need to do if we're going to really try to ramp up a restoration program for the irises is we really got to get them people back in people's minds. So yeah. we discovered that there's numerous raised boardwalks that go through swamps and marshes in southeast Louisiana. And so we went out walking in some trails, and only two of them had irises growing next to them. Damn. Some of them had irises growing two or 300 feet away, but you really couldn't see it. Sure. So meanwhile, when you look in the parking lot, it's like people from all over the country, you know, people going out to these boardwalks regularly. And so we kind of just put two and two together and said, <laughs> well, really from a marketing standpoint, it'd probably be a good idea to have the state wildflower yeah. growing by some of these boardwalks and trails. Right. They're the best promotion for themselves is just seeing one, right? Yeah. Oh, it just, it stops you cold when you see it. Yeah. Because they're just so beautiful. And it's like, no, nobody's ever created these. These have been here centuries, even before we got here. Right. You know? And, um, uh, it's, it's just unbelievable to have that experience when you see a big clump out in the wild. Yeah. Brilliant. So then we found that there were some properties that were being developed that had irises growing on. Mm. So then we came up with a simple idea of, well, why don't we ask those people if we can dig them up and then get a permit or permission from the places that had the boardwalks and plant them and kind of kill two birds at one stone. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we did. And, um, we got one particular landowner. There's quite a few irises that's been uh, his lands for sale. It's uncommercial. It's permitted. Um, he doesn't have it for sale aggressively. So, um, you know, we could get a call from him at any time or maybe two or three years from now. But he's encouraged us to get the irises out. So we've been that's working good. with yeah. him. Um, also, we've found individual landowners that have, you know, sometimes it may only be a couple hundred. Sometimes it's a couple thousand. We hmm. do it. We discovered one yesterday, uh, Tuesday, I'm sorry. The lady had told me we could have them, but they were mixed in with other grasses. So I only thought it was about 50 or 60. Well, I went back yesterday and they were blooming, and it's a couple of oh, Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and they in, a, they in a ditch that when you look at it, you, it's like it's only a question of time before it's going to be sprayed. Yeah. Uh, they underneath a live oak tree. Um, which causes uh, irises to struggle if, if it's not a real wet winter because the tree roots just pull so much moisture out and they definitely a wet right. soil plant. So uh, we're not, of course, we don't ever take them all out unless we know for sure the bulldozers are on their way. Yeah, and yeah. We have everything we can, uh, but we'll definitely go in and thin those out. And so from various places, 
uh, let's see, in 2020, we rescued and planted $8,000. Wow. Uh, 2021, it was 6000 and I think this year was close to 6000 um, And so what we did was um, all of this involves a lot of labor. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, we set out to find groups that could help us plant. We were getting volunteers, but for the most part, they were 50 years old and older. Yeah. And it was a small group, so yeah. you had to go yeah. back multiple times to really accomplish big numbers. Well, then we found out that there's groups of college and high school students that come in from around the country for a week of service activities because well, they get well. service credits back home and they get to, and they call it cultural immersion. They get to see a new culture. Right. And so we connected with one of those groups by the name of Common Ground Relief that hosts these groups from around the country that come in and stay at their place. And then they find service projects. So Common Ground specializes in marsh restoration oh, projects. Wow. Okay. Although they do have a food pantry, they're located in the lower ninth ward and they do have other inner city things that they do. Uh, so I met with them. I kind of explained to them what the deal was with the Louisiana irises. And so they kind of did a test project with me. They were happy with the way it turned out. Fortunately, irises and cypress trees kind of grow in the same habitat. Hmm. So it was something they were already used to as far as the habitat. And then it got to a point where they would give me uh, one day of the volunteers' week while they were in town to do our what we call our stuff. <laughs> right. Then, then the problem came up was that okay, if we rescue the irises in uh, June or July, that's not a good time to plant them. Best time to plant the irises is in September through hmm. January. Okay. So Common Ground Relief allowed us to use a lot next to the Westland Wetlands Nursery in New Orleans East. Well, we were able to get some donations from different groups. Uh, the Miro Foundation, Native Plant Initiative, and the Friends of the Wildlife Refuges. Excellent. And so we set up what we call the Iris Holding Area, and we had black mortar containers sitting on uh, pallets. It's all low-budget deal. Sure, sure. Yeah, as it should Sitting on pallets, which be. is sitting on cinder blocks. <laughs> Nice. On the soil in these black containers, uh, because they're waterproof, when you fill them with soil and fill them with water, it's basically like a little mini swamp. Nice. So we found that if we take the irises uh, from the wild, put them in these containers with the soil and keep them wet, that they strengthen up tremendously uh, over the summer, their roots get straight, and then so in about August or September, they start putting out leaf growth. And wow. by late September, October, they were ready to move out. And it's amazing how much they can grow and just so much stronger to be able to handle being replanted yeah. than if we tried yeah. to, to do it during the summertime. Yeah. Of course, digging anything up and planting it in the summertime is a high risk. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the heat and the dryness. So. Anyway, uh, it's pretty impressive. We got this whole lot of all these containers and rows, and <laughs> nice. come October when we dig our first one up, it's really something to see on top. I bet, yeah. Now, uh, volunteers love building things. They love creating new plantings. They hate maintenance. 
they'll do it. But they, you don't come all the way from Wyoming to uh, to weed pot. Right. You don't have to. Right. So um, what we do is we don't propagate the irises. We we load up every container, and when we got six to eight thousand irises, we quit doing rescues. We let them grow, and then in October we dig them up. And our goal is by February to have every single irises planted wow. in all containers, which which we just did about two months ago. Yeah, I saw the article. Yeah, and then what we'll do is if something comes up with a site that needs to be rescued, like in starting November, December, and we have the volunteers, then we will go dig them up hmm. and then plant them within a few days because at that time you, you can transplant them directly from one place to another. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah, it is. And so the rule is if you get them in, before January, they'll probably bloom, you know, three months later. Once you start getting into January, you're kind of taking a chance of whether or not they're going to bloom. Hmm. And the reason that's important is the landowners that we bring in our to, as well as the volunteers, they really want to see a lot of bling <laughs> that first year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not always happy if they just kind of struggle. Right. What we always tell me? everybody, you know, really, if you, if you plant an iris in late winter, really, you shouldn't expect a whole lot to the following you know, one year later. Sure. Give them some time, right? So, um, I would say 70 to 80% of what we planted, um, in December and the first part of January ended up blooming. That's a great ratio. We are, um, at the peak bloom right now for a lot of places. There's a couple of places I can tell you in a minute where they'll still be blooming in a week or two. But uh, so you're catching me out of time. Hey, I'm worn out because <laughs> I've been on the road every day. Right. Events and it's just really been hectic the last two or three weeks. Because you have this window of opportunity yeah. to get out and see the results of your work <laughs> and meet with your volunteers because they all excited and right. they all up to the boardwalks. And uh, we have a big meeting tomorrow uh, outside of Thibodeau with a lady who owns the oldest. Um, Louisiana Irish Nursery in the wow. United States. That's something. She's 85, and um, one of our members stopped by her place yesterday because she used to open it all the time during the bloom so people could come see the Irish bloom. So he just took a chance and drove in, and sure enough, she was there, and he got to talking to her. Well, he has worked with me on our Lockport, Louisiana, Fort project. So he struck up a conversation with her. And she says, I want to go see it. So she filed, she talked to me in the letting her file, went to the boardwalk. There was a group there when they realized who she was. It was like a celebrity, wow. an Irish celebrity. So nice. she bonded with everybody there. And oh. So she invited us all to come back to her nursery to um, to learn more about what we're doing and, and in the hopes that she can participate in some way. That's fantastic. Um, and so we go in there tomorrow morning. Nice. To, so things like that kind of pop up, <laughs> right? Have been popping up, and um, there's so many things that's happened just in the last two weeks. I'd, I'd love to share with you that, that was totally unscripted that just happened. <laughs> I love it. Really cool because people, you know, people in South Louisiana, people really get excited about Louisiana. That's awesome to hear yeah especially it considering is. the sort of yeah. cultural disconnect that has occurred over the last few decades that's right 
and uh, a lot of what we're seeing out of the boardwalks coming out of the families. And wow. Because the, what the boardwalks allow you to do, and this is one of the things I've always said, is, you know, we talk about marsh restoration and, and making sure the swamps are a buffer between us and the swamp surge. But, you know, New Orleans has got to have a few hundred thousand people that have never actually seen this. I believe it. Yeah. I've seen it up close. Right. Because, you know, they all live behind the levees. <laughs> levees are 21, 22 feet tall. And so unless you fish or hunt or something like that, there's not necessarily a good reason to go out and explore the, on the other side of the levee system. Yeah, and I feel like the word swamp in and of itself conjures up this idea of just bugs and th- you know, things that people want to avoid. But when all you right. finally get out and see one, you're like, oh, this is really cool cool and beautiful and interesting like that immersion is life. vital yeah. yeah well one of the first places to get a boardwalk was the uh, barataria preserve the u.s park service in gene uh, <laughs> and um that was the first time i think that the public could actually go out safely like you're hovering above it all <laughs> yeah and let me tell you i, I had an open table at uh, open house table uh Sunday, this past Sunday. And I, I tell you, it's crazy. I mean, a boardwalk's only like a foot, a foot and a half high, and you get down to boardwalk and the snakes everywhere, the alligators. <laughs> but man, everybody loves it. As a matter of fact, I had a tough competition. It was an alligator oh, wow. boardwalk, and not, not too many people were interested in ours at that particular <laughs> This thing has teeth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I'm working at the boardwalks, it kills me. Every time I run into somebody, I'm I always dreaming. They're going to say, where the hours have been in Southern? They go, where the alley is? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you'll be interviewing me in a few years for the alligators. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever way the wind blows. Flow, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, this seems more, this makes more sense at this point. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was all these Different places started getting boardwalks. You had the town of Jean Lafitte, uh, Big Branch in Lacombe, uh, Wildlife and Fisheries, just south of Pontchartula, Joyce, mm-hmm. uh, Wildlife Refuge has a boardwalk. Mandalay has a trail, Mandalay Refuge, Bahama, the Bayou Tesh has a boardwalk in the middle of nowhere. It's got the most irises per square foot of boardwalk. Wow. All, uh, I mean, it's really a challenge to even find it. Yeah. Um, you know, so and there's more. I'm just can't think of Fine Blue State Park as a boardwalk and a trail. So we uh we contacted all of those plus more, and um, you'd be amazed, first of all, how many of the managers were like, Well, what's an iris? No, oh, boy, <laughs> ouch, <laughs> like, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, there's, we got a work cut out for there's us. a disconnect here. Oh, but man. I got to tell you, you know, this is only four years into it, and those days are long gone. That's great. They are fired up. and Good. Man, I can't tell you how many people out at the boardwalks uh, this past weekend during the peak one. Excellent. And uh, so, yeah, we got them all on board. So, um, as I said, after about two years with the Great New Orleans Our Society, I started the uh, Louisiana Hours Conservation Initiative, and we just continued. And um, we already had a pretty pretty good 
thing going as far as making yeah. contacts yeah. And, and finding irises and playing them. And then it just even ballooned up from there. That's wonderful. And so we did manage, when I was with the Great Ones, I was sorry, we were able to get a lot of, of the college volunteers from Common Ground Relief and some other groups. Hmm. Uh, but then COVID shut all that down. Damn. So for yeah. two years, we've been kind of limping along, scraping our volunteers where we could. And, you know, where with college students, you may do 15 students at a time. They're young, they're strong. You know, with the local volunteers, they're going to be somewhat older and you're only going to get about six or eight of them. So we ended up doing a lot more events hmm. to do the same amount of work. Right. But I'm so thankful because it has really grown and more and more people are becoming aware of it. More and more people are going out to the boardwalks doing the bloom. More and more the managers are proud of their irises now. Excellent. More and more places are calling everyone ours is at our place too. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's happening. Oh yeah. And so I, I have a business background, as I said. Um, definitely profit oriented as my friends were. Sure. And so um, I run into my buddies from then and uh, they go, let me let me ask you about this nonprofit thing. How does that work? I mean, you actually like don't make money. Is that the point? Is <laughs> to like, not profit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what do you sell ours for? So now we give them away. <laughs> what, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> they go, well, I understand why you're popular. You don't charge. There's <laughs> no cost. And you give the product away. <laughs> and then they look at me with kind of like disgust and was like, what's so great about that? Yeah, and what have like, you done? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and i'm like look it's all about the hours yeah man back where people can see them and, and so what our strategy is which i have to say i, I think it's working most things I, I try to get involved with i hope work out i got a pretty good track record sure um so you raise awareness of the hours back to where it was those people connect with the people at a powers that be with mass restoration projects. And we found out that right now on a federally funded marsh restoration project, Louisiana irises are not even on the list of plants that you can oh, purchase. Ouch. Because nobody's ever sat down and done what they call specifications where hmm. um, you determine uh, what's the correct iris for the habitat that's being restored. Each species of ours should have uh, very strict specifications of whether to be planted or not planted, how to plant them, mm. you know, how deep to plant, when do you plant them? Um, and for the growers, you know, if they got a gallon pot container, which is what they all want because they use it to transfer out on these marsh restoration projects, um, what size plant should the grows used, when when is that plant ready to be sent out to the market? There's all these things that nobody's ever sat down <laughs> and got approved and yeah. listed and said this is the specification for the gigantic real hours. This is where it needs to go, etc. So I had a conversation with uh, some of my friends at the Society for Louisiana Hours, and we have two of the um, governmental groups, two two people. Uh, that are key to getting the specifications written and approved of Arctic 
pelvis. So we're just now in the beginning stages, I hope, of uh, tackling the next phase. Yeah. Which is first phase, get everybody excited about ours, <laughs> talking about they need to go back in the swamp. Yeah. Second phase, get them approved and have them being grown by uh, the USDA approved nurseries so that they're available for uh, companies to purchase. So that's excellent. That's our long-term goal. Yeah, for sure. And, and then that's when you start really getting into big numbers. And all of that will be coming on, we hope, coming on stream about the same time that the Mississippi River diversions are being built. And, hmm. You know, salt water is being pushed back and fresh water is being moved in. And that's the demand great. for fresh water plants is really going to expand. Yeah. Now, are these a group of irises? I mean, I know horticulturally speaking, people have planted irises and many listeners will have them in their gardens, but you know, are they much different other than needing that wetness? Like, is this something that really will lend well to propagation in these instances? I mean, you mentioned getting them in at the right time, right place kind of deal, but is it not much of a stretch to imagine them being able to scale up at that level? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it'd be that difficult at all. And as a matter of fact, there are Irish nurseries um, that sell, I want to say Cindy's Irish, I can't say for sure how many sold, but it's thousands of Irish. Wow. There's about three or four Louisiana Irish nurseries that are growing the cultivars. Okay. So the who, how, where, when to grow Louisiana Irish has as long ago uh, been perfected. Good. Um Getting the species plants, <laughs> plants that have to go out in the wild is a real trick because, um, as I said, those are in decline. You don't want to dig up irises over here and then move them and plant them on the March registration over there. So at the same time, they do produce huge numbers of seeds. Hmm. So I think uh, what we'll see develop is the nurseries actually growing them out by seed because each in the wild, uh, each flower produces a seed pod, hmm. and each seed pod can have between 30 and 50 or 60 seeds. Wow, okay. Each flower stalk has three seeds, so that's say 60 times three, it's 180 seeds huh. per flower stalk. So, when you see these pictures of masses of viruses, uh, we did our collection at the Bayou Sauvage wildlife refuge last year and we collected six thousand seeds wow which is a lot of seeds yeah. <laughs> so yeah i think um I, I, you know none of these nurseries are going to do anything unless there's demand naturally and none of the places that are doing restoration projects are going to um want to experiment with something new or something different sure unless the people that are running the project or landowners asked for. So that's the, the people that we're after. Right. We, we want to get to the people who ultimately are responsible when everything's said and done with the land to want Louisiana horses growing back on their properties again. I got to tell you, it's an easy sell. Yeah, the whole, right. And I think the whole thing is actually not going to be difficult. Yeah. It's just going to take time. It's going to take a group of us to work, work it through uh, the system and get to where we're hoping we can go to with it. Certainly. And I mean, it's a really vital perspective to bring to the table because, again, this is something you just 
kind of fell into and and followed it to its logical conclusion and you know you're doing it like you said on a shoestring if not uh, a budget that's minimal we'll we'll call it and yeah very very much so but the 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 idea there is connecting it to the people and having that sort of momentum build which should inspire anyone listening that these good things because everyone treats a lot of these environmental issues especially around species that are obscure maybe not in the sort of public eye as sort of lost causes no 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 no. we can reverse you just need some patience and the right approach but the other side of it too is it's this is sound plant conservation because all of those rescued individuals would have been genetic diversity lost forever And being able to go out and rescue not only the plants, but the genetic diversity that's contained in these populations is vital to the success of any of these projects moving forward. Because you can't just clone your way from a few individuals to a solution like what you're trying to attempt. Right. And, you know, you touched on something. I'm glad you did, because it's, it's really important to me. And when when people ask me, well, like, how did all this get conjured up? All these things you're doing. I said, you know, it's really simple. What happened to me was the realization that, like everybody else, I thought that for every type of species or plant or animal out there, there's some science, scientists, <laughs> some university, some governmental agency where there's people in lab coats, you know, warned about the gray squirrel. <laughs> reintroducing them to where they were lost and it did not take me very long once i started hanging around and meeting some of these uh managers and staff of these wildlife refuges yeah nothing could be further from the truth oh, i God. mean yeah black bear bears they sexy whales <laughs> you know, cougars you know they got they got tracking things <laughs> on them and scientists run around yeah tracking place and they all get excited when one of them has babies you know <laughs> but man but for most of what's out there if the citizens and individuals don't say this is something i'm interested in this is something i want to get involved in nobody's doing it yeah i mean a good example is like the native plant thing and how that's taken right. off i mean that was not driven by any governmental agency or scientists or universities that was driven by people that realized the number of butterflies was going down right and birding is, is i think is probably the fastest growing hobby in the united states right now Man. and that's that's the same thing i mean you got all these birding groups and it's just a bunch of people that have that as an interest but they're not just going out and looking at birds. They're starting to branch out and out wanting to protect the habitat. No. And not only that, but they're willing to get out and do the work. I've gotten involved with the Nature Conservancy in Grand Isle, with Gene Landry down there. And their uh, Lafitte Woods is the first live oak tree forest that the birds hit when they cross the Gulf hmm. of Mexico in the spring. I mean, it's really critical habitat. No. And Nature Conservancy got it because of that there's a lot of those forests are the same forests that have been there for a few hundred years significantly reduced but luckily they they got what was left of it well you get birds go up there and they clear trails and they pick up trash and they get involved and uh common ground relief knives get involved to help plant more trees so i mean it's just pretty much people are starting to figure out that um there's plenty, plenty of opportunities for people to get involved, either as an individual or to get together with a group. 
to try to affect change or preserve any any aspects yeah. of, of plant and animal life that you see because a lot of it just is not <laughs> there's nobody looking after it yeah you know? yeah Maybe looking after the whole scheme of things sure yeah but the idea that these sort of umbrella organizations are going to be able to even have the time or the funding to do it all. I mean, the best intentions right. can be put forward, but without the power of the citizens that live here, that are out right. there, that have hobbies, that want to devote that dedications like you have, I mean, that's where I personally have talked to hundreds of people and that's where the best actions end up usually happening. And that's encouraging. I'm really happy to hear it. Well, it's the most fulfilling, too, because most of the time, see, we have no membership. Yeah. We have no meetings. We don't have any socials. <laughs> I have a very small board of directors. We come up with a project. We post volunteer events to get the public out to help us. And a lot of volunteers will come for a specific thing that they want to be involved in. Not everybody can go out in the swamps or some of our volunteer events on dry land and safer than others. And when they want to come, they come, they call us and say, we're coming. And that's mm. great. We may not see them for two or three months and that's okay too. So it's like a loosely organized, <laughs> actually we're very organized, but it's not organized in the traditional right. garden club mode right. where you have meetings and discussions and get speakers. We've learned that sites like yours, um, Shit, I, I can remember not that long ago where if you wanted to hear from an expert about a topic you were interested in, you had to join that organization. You had yeah. to go to the meeting. You had to sit through lunch and you had to sit through the business meeting. <laughs> how much money they got, how much more they need yeah, before yeah. you finally got to the speaker. And now um, it's it's available um, on the internet and through YouTube. Uh, a yeah. big, big reason is because of COVID forces yeah. into it. But I don't think that's, that's going to go away. I think that's connecting people and making people understand that they can uh, pick and choose what they want to be involved in. I, a good example is my daughter, uh, Krista Adams, has uh, created a nonprofit for the Purple Martins. Wow, wow. Awesome. But a simple act of putting up a Purple Martin box in your <laughs> backyard, which, you know, maybe that's a half day's work, and you may end up with, 10 pair of purple martins wow. so you having this direct impact <laughs> yeah seriously on that species in in the environment and you haven't been to a single meeting you haven't paid any dues <laughs> anything but you right. can go out there and enjoy the work that you've done so right. she's worked to get these boxes to people that's and great one of the things that she focused on was in grand isle because Grand Isle had a pretty big population of uh, bird purple martin houses that, that people really enjoy purple martins, but they all got blown down. So from the hurricane, it's all these purple mm. martins across the Gulf of Mexico. And I was like, wait, you know, what happened to my yeah, Where's home? So she's working um, with with the Nature Conservancy and also the, uh, the city government to get purple That's martins. awesome. So. Well, I mean, between, you know, just the two examples there, your your work and her work, you're both working with the momentum of a region, too. You know, you're you're part of the community and right. you see the change that's happening. You understand the threats. You know, you start connecting it to the cultural history and just how quickly things can truly change. I mean, like you said, you went from 
irises as far as the eye could see to the fact that people were ignoring them to where the heck are they all now almost right. overnight, you know, and especially in a right. plant's life scale. So to think that you can look at the changes that are happening, see the momentum people are taking in different directions and finding that common ground, those where those Venn diagrams overlap and just working with that momentum and to, to reiterate, not having to invest millions of dollars in the process. I mean, capital is always the thing that scares people right. off, but passion can do a lot. And you never know where it leads to. For instance, as a group um, led by Donovan Garcia, friends of the Bayou Test Refuge in Franklin, Louisiana, just west of Morgan City. And so they had the idea, one of the problems they have is the refuge parts of new land is crisscrossed with gas line, pipeline right-of-ways. Mm. So they reforest in all the land, but they can't reforest the pipelines. Right. So they, they like, okay, well, these companies are spending all this money keeping the grass cut. <laughs> On the other hand, we're trying to convince people to stop cutting their lawns <laughs> to create native plants. Right. <laughs> you know for butterflies and birds and things and so they they like had a you know a realization that man maybe this will work so they came up with a plan to apply for a grant which they got to put wildflowers in, in the gas line right away as a refuge nice well uh, the gas line oil companies now this is not something i've been involved in so i hope i don't get the story okay. so gas line pipeline Companies find out that they can get uh, some type of carbon credits huh. for growing wildflowers instead of just weeds. So when they had the big um, dedication of this program, pipeline representatives from all around the country came. Well, well, well. Now they're thinking, God, <laughs> this is not a bad idea. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, so this small group in Will Franklin, Louisiana. <laughs> have an idea that could fundamentally unbelievably increase the amount of wildflowers and pollen right not just in louisiana but it may be all over the country yeah, yeah. so crazy. that's what you call hitting the home run yeah that's something yeah <laughs> i'll be happy if you know there's a few hundred hours of going out <laughs> on the project but, uh, so, they they really it's it, and i hope it works because if it does yeah could be something you could hang your hat on and say hey right and it it shows this you know it's it it shows a willingness to work with instead of against all the time which it 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 always feels like people are trying to just divide 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 but if we can find that common ground and work with you know we could be improving a lot on of what makes our society already pretty fun to live in right and and make it right i think so yeah right and so with that in mind you know people listening you know, people listening to this are coming in from all over the world, all over the country, uh, at the very least, maybe not necessarily all in Louisiana, but are there ways people listening can help your mission? Spreading the word, donating, that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, we do need money, not a lot, <laughs> but we have to, we usually right after the bloom is when we restock our, um, our holding area and the containers break and, you know, we got to buy more soil. So we generally try to raise a couple thousand dollars a year just for that. Great. So we have no overhead, no paid staff. Um, it's only about maintaining what we have to do to keep the irises that we rescued strong and get them back out into the um, into the swamp. So, yeah, I would encourage everybody to follow. If you're on Facebook, follow our Facebook page. 
It's L-I-C-I Save Viruses. Um, we have a website which does have a donate button on it, button on it, and that's L-I-C-I Save Viruses.com. And um, one thing that you can do if you go to our website on the top right, there's a news button. If you hit that news button, we kind of try to keep it current on different things that we're doing. Um, we use our Facebook page a lot. We almost use it more of a as a blog. Sure. And you know, this is a group that planted trees. So we do a little bit of that, but it's mostly the, the problem is when you have a group of people who want to be part of what you're doing. But mm. you don't have meetings, you don't have mayor memberships, you don't have <laughs> right. newsletters. Right. It's like how do you inform everybody on what you're up to and what they can participate in? And so we've we've chosen to do that through our Great. Facebook page. So um, I know there's a lot of people that, that don't like Facebook, but I tell them all get on it. Don't have one friend. <laughs> right, right. Right. You can use it wisely. Else, I don't want to be your friend. <laughs> But if you then go and start following these groups that you're interested in, yeah, whether it's birding, irises, or something else, click on those groups so you get their posts. And, because there's tremendous amount of articles, uh, webinars, and information that uh, oh, you can almost only get through uh, yeah. doing that, going, going to their Facebook page and clicking on their site. Yeah. And it's so much easier than trying to keep track of everybody's website. And not everybody keeps their website up. It's a lot more difficult to maintain a website than a Facebook page. Yeah. So, um, yeah, first of all, if anybody wants to find out about us, um, about volunteering, uh, just send us a message through the website or Facebook page. We absolutely accept uh, donations. Um, and we're getting ready to go into the period where we, we go around and ask for people's support to get the money that we need to gear back up for this coming year. Wonderful. Well, I will save everyone the trouble of having to find those on their own. I will share those links far and wide. And well, thank you. Of course. Um, but I think I speak for everyone when I say you are a true inspiration for the work you all are doing. I can't thank you enough for putting an effort for these plants and, and really habitat in general. I mean, this is it's a piece of a larger puzzle that is so necessary for not only the biosphere, but our existence. Uh, and, and no one feels that stronger than people that live on the Louisiana coast. So thank you for all of your efforts and for telling us about it today. I really appreciate it. Well, and I got to tell you, you talk about my efforts. If I was going out to rescue dogs by myself and I was planting them by myself, <laughs> I'd have 300 of them done this year. <laughs> I've got 8,000. So yeah, I'm the face tonight of my group, but we literally have hundreds of volunteers. That's wonderful. The last few years, so nothing that we doing would be possible without their help. Perfect. Well, shout out to every single one of them. And Gary, thank you again for taking time to be the face of it tonight. We really appreciate it. All right. Good. All right. Well, You're hang welcome. in there, stay healthy, and uh, keep it up. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the invitation. Of course. Well. It was a pleasure. Right. Cheers. All right. Truly inspirational work. I thank Gary for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I really hope you will go check out the links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and consider helping out the Louisiana Iris Conservation Initiative. 
These irises are amazing. They need a future on this planet, but they're also part of a bigger ecosystem. And all of this work goes into making swamps and freshwater wetland habitats healthy again. Nowhere is this more apparent than the Louisiana coast. And I really thank Gary and all of the volunteers that put in time to help these plants and their habitat. Once again, please check out those show notes and consider helping them out. And while you're there, consider helping out the show either by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, or by picking up my book, some of our customizable merch, or stickers. All of those links are also in the show notes for each episode, so check that out. And at the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button. I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Dan, who just signed up at the producer credit level. So thanks to people like Dan, this show can keep running each and every week. So thank you again, Dan. I really appreciate it. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Keep checking back in because, of course, there's always so many good conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.